Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Spirituality and Mindfulness, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jack Petranker. I'm the host of the channel. And today we're going to be talking to Stephanie Kaza about her new book, Green Buddhism. Stephanie is Professor Emeritus in the Rubenstein School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Vermont. She's a writer. She's a practicing Soto Zen Buddhist. She's an active proponent of many things. <laughs> and we'll get Stephanie to tell us more about that. So so welcome, Stephanie. We're really glad to have the opportunity to talk with you. Well, thank you for having me as a guest on your show. I'm delighted to be here. Great. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, maybe your education, and also just all of the things that led up to your writing this book. I know that's a lot. And uh, if you want to pause at some point, or if I have some questions, uh, I'll, I'll step in. But but let's get us started. Well, we could just start with the title, Green and Buddhism, and that will tell you quite a bit. So uh, the green part is that I had the great good fortune of my parents moving from Buffalo, New York, which was a much whiter city across a long winter, to the Pacific Northwest, to the beautiful state of Oregon. And in the a process of moving across the country, I really fell in love with the big landscapes of the West. I was only nine, but the Rocky Mountains, when we passed over that uh, huge craggy mass, uh, really struck me. And I would say that ever since, I have been completely in love with this beautiful earth, and particularly uh, this West Coast. Um, so even after a couple dozen years there back in Vermont, I'm very happy to be close to my mountains, my trees, and the Pacific Ocean and the tides. So that green part is deep in my soul and spirit, and I could go on at great length about botany and mushrooms and trees and uh, sand dollars and uh, all manner of things. I love reading geology books and uh, going to wildflower shows and just going on hikes in the in the woods or along the beach, 
to see what else I can see and learn from, and also just to be with. It's an, a never-ending source of wonder and joy and beauty. That's that's very inspiring. I, I um, you know, I, I've, I mean, I've driven cross country a couple of times, but um, what did strike me once was just flying over the Rockies and and being amazed at the expanse. They just go on and on and on, and and that's something about the grandeur. But I, I do want to get back into your background and how this led into this. But but you know, you do say something early on in your book that that it's so important for people to really get directly involved with the landscape and feel, I'm quoting you now, feel the sensory impact of its presence. So it sounds like that's what you're talking about. And that very much happened for me as a, as a young person coming into adolescence. And I often found solace walking in the woods and uh, a sense of having company when I was around trees and flowers and plants and animals that I was never turned away from them. They always welcomed me um, through any emotional state. So there was a kind of natural ease for me, at least, in being outside. And I, I particularly enjoyed being outside in the dark and walking in the dark. And I had the good fortune to teach uh, for a couple of years in an outdoor education program uh, for sixth graders in California. We would take the, the kids out for walks at night, and they were, of course, quite uh, skittish But um, because we wouldn't allow them to use flashlights. Mm-hmm. But a whole other world opened up to them by seeing the stars and feeling their other senses come to life without that dependence on the visual. So those kinds of explorations have always been interesting to me. And uh, seeing the depth behind whatever you are observing uh the geologic story, the long history evolutionarily of any organism that survived to this time. It gives me a a deep time perspective is one way to put it um, in the midst of the momentary wonder. Right. That makes good sense to me. It really, it really does. I, I, I try to get out into nature as much as I can. I live here in the city, but, but, um, yeah, there's just something about it. And I think most people know that. So so can you tell us something about how that then got translated into your professional career and, and your writing career? Well, I did go uh, keep going back to school. I seemed to learn to love to uh, be around people that could teach me things. And I did get a PhD in biology. It was It was fairly much concentrated on marine biology at University of California, Santa Cruz. But I was drawn there because I was passionate about whales. I really got the whale craze, uh, and I decided to learn as much as I could about marine mammals. And I studied with a, a well-known marine mammal scientist, Ken Norris, and uh, it was just at the time they were gaining federal protection with the Marine Mammal Protection Act. And at that time that I was in school, um, the elephant seals were coming back after a long period of extinction and hauling up at a local state park, Nuevo, just north of Santa Cruz. And I became involved in training student docents to manage tours through the elephant seals to protect the seals from the visitors who were are utterly fascinated by these two-ton male behemoths down there on the beach. 
but they would do uh, foolish things like put their children on the backs of these sleeping seals. <laughs> so I became uh, involved in teaching people uh, how to be with the natural world in a constructive and exciting way. And um, I myself ended up studying the tuna porpoise problem because I was so upset about how many dolphins were being killed uh, during that period of time in the harvest of tuna for food. So I studied that what from what turned out to be a systems perspective. I didn't know yet that term at the time, but as I got into the biology of what was happening with the tunas and the dolphins, it was clear that wasn't driving the situation. What was really driving it was fisheries biology and law and economics and cultural values. So I ended up writing about all those things in my PhD, and I'm sure I barely made it through the biology committee because it was just so broad. But um, I see that that systems view is what I took with me from that training and have used it ever since. So it's a, it's a green view in the sense that it's very biologically grounded, but it includes all the human aspects of how we are interacting with the natural world in our economies, our politics, our religions, our social values, our human communities. So it's a very big view, and that uh, allows you to see things in, from many different perspectives. Now, along the way, I got interested in Buddhism, and I can't even probably explain how that happened. I took a course at Oberlin College that was fascinating, and that was at a moment when I thought I might switch my major from biology to religion. But it wasn't until I did an actual long retreat at a, a center in Northern California at Mount Shasta, Shasta Abbey, that I f- could really see the potential of Buddhism, both philosophically in terms of how it overlaps with ecological thinking, and then as a practice. It was very calming and centering for me, and I just picked it up naturally. Uh, the, it, it just seemed like a perfect fit. And of course, from then on, I, I spent time living at Green Gulch Zen Center. I went to many retreats with Thich Nhat Hanh. I taught Buddhism and ecology. I've maintained a steady uh, Zen practice for a long time. And the Buddhist view has been very useful in interreligious dialogues to uh, uh, regard the environment, um, drawing on Buddhist philosophical principles. So that's a little something? bit of an overview here to yeah. give you a taste. No, that's great. I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. And, and then you did along the way get a, 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 a Master's of Divinity degree also. So uh, Yes, you, that was you, another uh, kind of fortuitous, uh, in a way, very random experience. But I, how it came about was I had been living at Green Gulch Zen Center and feeling quite called to deepen my religious and spiritual uh, foundation and understanding. And at the time, the only thing that was on offer at Green Gulch was to go to Tassajara, the monastic practice center. And that seemed one step too far for me because I was a, a very engaged activist. And the thought of being in seclusion for three months away from all the action, uh, just I couldn't square it with all that was going on in the world. I felt I needed to be close at hand. Also, at that time, Zen practice in America was fairly stern and somewhat, uh, I called it macho Zen. It was influenced by the training of male monastics in Japan, 
And I, it was a little tough on my physical body to um, be in super cold temperatures down there at Tassajara in the winter and walking in a zendo and bare feet. Um, it just, I knew I would have difficulty. So I was casting about for what other kinds of religious training I could find. And I remembered my my brother talking about Star King School for the Ministry at a point when he was thinking about that himself. We both grew up attending the First Unitarian Church in downtown Portland. And so I just went over to talk with them and they were so welcoming. I said, Buddhism, fine. We'd love to have you. And what I found was a very open and supportive and experimental educational institution uh, that really suited me. Uh, They were willing to uh, give you credit for all the different possible ways you were learning in your own spiritual development. So it was very compatible. And uh, in the course of that training, I began writing my first tree essays for a small tutorial and was encouraged to take that further. So I consider that time at Star King to have been very um, uh, affirming of the direction I was going. And I did continue to live in Muir Beach near the Zen Center. And at that time, I was working at the UC Berkeley Botanical Garden as the education director. So I still squarely had my feet in my two camps of the natural world and the religious world. And I was quite at home with that combination. It sounds like everything was coming together for you in a really, a really nice way. Um, so, so say something about uh, your tree essays. One of the essays in your book is called "Conversations with Trees." So, I assume that 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 fits in with with your writing and your practice and your being present with trees. Can you say something about that? Well, this tutorial I mentioned is where this all began. It was supposed to be a tutorial. Tutorial on Martin Buber's uh, book and philosophy uh, called I and Thou. And the professor I was working with was a a deep-thinking theologian. And I asked very early on, could you have I and Thou relationships with trees? And he pointed right away to a passage in Martin Buber's work, and he was willing to support me with that. I had thought it would be a tutorial about Jesus, but he allowed me to go in this new direction, and that um, term, I had, I was, I did a Zen retreat at Jokoji Zen Center, and just let myself be called by a tree. Now, I say be called uh, because I had one essay sort of planned out. I thought I'm going to go to this Douglas fir. I'm going to sit at its feet. I'll write while I sit there. And that morning, when I went down there the alders across the pond were just shouting with spring energy. And I just had to listen. The Douglas fir was going to have to wait. And the power (laughs) of that encounter is what really set the tone for all the tree essays that followed. I used a certain bar that I, I needed to hear the energy of that tree loud enough over all the human commotion so that I would be able to pay attention really fully and completely. If it was some idea that came out of my head, it usually was going to fall short because it was too dependent on whatever I was thinking. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my process was trying to get out of my own way, actually. And what I trusted the most was when I felt a strong energetic pull 
or almost a sense of of love, of feeling like I'm falling in love right now. I don't understand what this is, but what it's a magical opening. So go with that. In fact, one of the pieces in the tree book is called Maple Ecstasy. That was a particularly strong falling in love on a spring day when I sprinted down the hill at, at Muir Beach. Um, uh, where I was living to get to Muir Woods, an iconic national monument for redwoods. But I needed to see the maples because the maple flowers are just so gorgeous in spring. These kind of chandeliers just hanging down of many columns of flowers. And I wanted to feel that ecstasy of being in love with maples. So they took all different forms, these conversations with trees. And that's actually the title of the it was the subtitle of the first book, and uh, Shambhala has recently re-released that book uh, with Conversations with Trees as the main title, uh, seeing that now here, 25 years later, there is so much more interest in trees and a fellow feeling about them that I was pointing to in those early days. So that term seemed like the right term that whatever, sometimes the conversations were silent, Sometimes they were full of uh, chatter in some way I can't describe, but uh, they led me to want to somehow get them down in writing. Well, that that makes good sense to me, although I can't say that I've had an ecstatic experience with trees, but but I do have a sense of the presence of, especially the, the redwoods. You know, I live in Northern California also, and, and um, I, I just love the redwoods, so. Well, that's that's a wonderful place to start. I found when I would do readings from this book that many people would come up afterwards and tell me about a special tree or a place they love to go and that they they needed affirmation themselves that this wasn't crazy. And I could see that they'd begun their own conversations. And from one, you could easily go go on to the next. Now, I will say that doesn't mean they were all happy and thrilling. There were some very dark moments when I learned things I didn't expect to learn about the history of a piece of land or the trees themselves that left me weeping. But I was still willing to hear as much as was being offered. And I think that makes it more honest and more real and, and really reflects the complexity of human tree relationships. Yeah, that does make good sense to me. Now, let me let me just ask you. I, I've actually led some retreats where I've asked people to start a conversation with trees. Um, mm-hmm. So I've explored this a bit, I guess. And um, I, I, I've had people come back to me sometimes and and uh, and say, "Well, you know, I went to a tree, but the tree didn't want to be engaged. The tree wanted to be left alone." Have you had that experience also? Oh, definitely. A sense that this isn't the right spot. So don't, don't open it up. Don't force anything. Mm-hmm. Um, because really, the, the conversations are a study in, of ourselves, of our own obstacles, our own ideas, our stereotypes. We have a lot of ideas about trees, and, and you have to recognize them and then set them aside with grandeur of trees or elegance or um, like Japanese tree tree pruning. Think of that, and our beautiful Japanese garden here in Portland. The trees are are perfect, but they've all been uh, influenced by uh, human ideas of tree beauty. 
So sometimes that that kind of the tree isn't speaking to me could be a signal that you are too busy with your own mind to be able to hear. And then uh, a little more walking meditation might calm that busy mind down. That, that's interesting. Yeah. You, you mentioned um, later in your book, I, I'm going to quote something here along those lines, when, when you, um, you're talking about the process, it's in, it's in the essay called The Attentive Heart, and and you're talking about observing, and you say there's a tendency to um, to make what you're observing, and I'm going to quote, an object of fascination, a delirium of nature bonding, a symphony of deliberate orchestration. Um, and it, that was striking to me because I've noticed that. You, people see a sunset, but in the next moment they want to make it into this wonderful experience, and now they've lost the immediacy of the observation. It's a kind of commodification of the experience with a positive spin, no doubt. And it and it is still grounded in a non-dualistic communion. But um, by by focusing on how good it makes you feel or how what you're sharing, or it could be a new bird for your life list, um, the bonding breaks. You you can't uh, you become more involved in your own celebration than in the the relational connection. And of course, that connection is some fairly fragile because we are so inexperienced uh, as a culture, um, and the languages and the presences are so different. So to attune to them requires a lot of attention and a lot of steadiness. It's not a given by any means. And some people uh, naturally attune to animal energy much, much more easily than they do to plant energy. So there's there's many variable factors there, but it's uh, the opposite could also happen, that you could attune to a delirium of grief and just loss and a sense that Here's a down tree, and so the whole world is, you know, dying. We have to be very careful of our tendency to um, project and to take things, uh, make them bigger than they are or smaller. The human mind is a, a very squirrely thing, and and so it, throughout this whole process of writing conversations with trees, I had to check myself and keep taking out anything excess that just got in the way. Let me ask you a question related to that. There's there's so much concern about the damage that we're doing, the very real damage that we're doing to the world around us. But since you have this felt sense and 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 conversations, um, it, do you think that's something that has made its way into your into the environment, into the, your conversational partners, a sense of 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 potential for destruction or loss? In other words, are we imposing that or is it something that really is is now part of the environment? Well, I'm looking out my window right now and seeing two maple trees, which once were quite lovely and uh, well extended into their early life branching that have been clipped straight across the top. Uh, by the arborists that were hired by the neighbor to keep them under control, I suppose. Um, So it's a brutal reminder of uh, human views of nature as objects to be managed. 
So I would say I see that constantly. Um, in the city, it's more obvious, of course, but uh, it's pretty hard to be anywhere in the world these days without seeing uh, human influence. And that's whether it's a management regime, fences or, you know, rules in the wilderness or just simply uh, the, the climate changing impacts that are affecting uh, particularly plants um, in terms of photosynthetic levels and, or carbon soot. Yeah. Once you have eyes to see the many different ways that human substances, thoughts, values, policies are layered on the land and all its beings, you can never not see it. That's how it appears to me. So it's present pretty much in every observation I make these days. Okay. So let me ask you a very general question, but maybe it'll lead us in a certain direction. Um, How would you tie this into your practice of Buddhism. I mean, the book is called Green Buddhism, right? So so you quote someone in the book as saying, uh, Buddhism is not a nature religion in the way that some other religions are. So it seems like you, is there a connection that you have to make or is that something that you feel has emerged for you naturally? Well, I can only speak for myself, but one reason I put that in there was... uh, almost to protect Buddhism from too much projection. It's not a religion like uh, Druid practice um, or like a Kami practice in uh, Northern Japan or some of the indigenous traditions that really hold uh, spiritual value in specific living beings. Uh, But the Buddhist philosophy easily moves from culture to culture. That's one of its great virtues. It it blends well with other cultures and is very adaptable. There's uh, not a strong policing, I guess I could say, of of the main principles. And the key one here that really works with an ecological view is the uh, principle of interdependence. It's at the root of all Buddhist thinking, Paticca Samuppada, It's a strongly relational view with a focus on process and interaction and relationship. And the uh, accompanying practice and truth that goes with that is that there is no separate self. There's no way for a single individual to conceive of itself as existing in an independent way from all the rest of the world. So this level of interdependence is quite ecological in thinking. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh popularized it very much with his teachings on a piece of paper. And he would hold up a piece of paper and point to it and say, you can see the clouds and the sun in this paper and the earth and all that went into making the paper. Um, so there, when you see the world or each being in the world as reflecting all that uh, brought it into being and supports its life now, it works against uh, what in Buddhism you would say is a delusional sense of separate self, that you can't pull yourself out of this web of life. There's a wonderful metaphor called Indra's net that came from the Huayan school in uh, Chinese Buddhism and around the 10th century. which tells a story of a teacher trying to ex- express this great truth of interdependence or paticca samuppada 
and he invites uh, the empress into a hall of mirrors, and he has placed a Buddha in the center of it. So this statue of a Buddha is reflected on all surfaces. And uh, she has a moment of awakening from seeing this complicated reflection. And the net metaphor extends that a little further. Indra's net is seen as a series of nets, you could think like a fish net, extending infinitely across the universe and intersecting in a myriad number of ways, you know, diagonally, horizontally, vertically, nets everywhere. And at every intersection of a node of the net is a jewel which has an infinite number of facets and is itself reflecting every other facet in the universe. Now, environmentalists like me jumped on that metaphor. We thought it was just the the perfect thing to explain an ecological worldview. You could quickly see that if a certain jewel became tarnished from air pollution or a certain set of threads became cut from timber logging, that the net was not as resilient or whole or complex. Hmm. So this became quite popular uh, in the in Greed and Buddhist circles, and it's written about a lot. Joanna Macy uh, draws on it quite a bit, one of a key teacher for me and many others, and uses it in her activist trainings. Uh, and one of the things that she brings out is with this complicated net describing the whole universe, there is no way you can fall out of that net. You are a part of the universe and it will hold you. So therefore you always have agency. You do not need to despair that you're helpless or that you don't count. You are one of those jewels. And I suppose there's the negative side of that, right? Which is that if your actions are destructive, that affects the net and in a way reflect back to you as well. That's also true. So this becomes a a way to work with uh, Buddhist ethics around non-harming and ask yourself, how do I live an ethical, virtuous life that reduces harm as much as possible? Uh, the, The relational view is always a place to return to, to ask about what's causing suffering, what's causing harm, And how can I uh, contribute less to that, but more to resilience and wholesome growth? Now, I would say one thing that's quite distinctly different that I write about in the book between ecological thinking and Buddhist philosophical thinking around interdependence is that the scientific viewpoint does not include human thoughts and values. It's very objective. It describes patterns of rainfall, and therefore patterns of tree growth, that sort of thing, or patterns of soil minerals and patterns of agricultural success. But in the Buddhist worldview, the human choices make, uh, are, are very important in this web. So valuing a tree as an object for use, for timber and building and paper and so on, um, means that that human perspective is playing a very significant part in the web. So myself, I find that Buddhist thinking is bigger and more inclusive than ecological thinking. And yet, 
people who practice ecological thinking are very well suited to expand that system's view wider to include human values, policies, and and thinking. It just means that that part must must also be named and and included and accounted for in what we see happening all around us. So if you're dealing with an activist audience, let's say, people who are, are very much involved in the climate emergency or in ecology, do you find there's a general openness to um, expanding that sense of interdispense, uh, inter- interdependence? <laughs> interdependence? Uh, yes, uh, particularly among the younger people. Um, the younger generations in their 20s and 30s, many of whom I was teaching when they were in undergraduates, that age group, um, seem to have uh, developed a quite natural um, web view of the world because they've grown up with a digital web um, representation of things where they can move quickly and horizontally to anything they can find on the web. Whereas people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s didn't grow up with that. Their minds were shaped by more linear patterns of thinking. Um, But once, no matter what the age, once you've had a a kind of an awakening to this ecological complexity, it's just a very short step to seeing the human impact and uh, the way human thoughts affect things. So I know, uh, for example, in in Joanna Macy's work that's called The Work That Reconnects, and I've trained with her and led a lot of these exercises myself, she draws deeply on systems thinking and Buddhist philosophy. Uh, But in the the work, they don't emphasize the Buddhist part. They emphasize the systems thinking um, because they want it to be available to people of all religious perspectives. And yet you can see right in these exercises very strong practices around equanimity, loving kindness, uh, sympathetic joy, the, the Brahma Viharas, for example. She just disguises them a little bit, but people are very receptive and find it gives them a much wider place to do their work from that is also more stable and uh, more reliable. That, that makes Good sense to me. The the um, the young people that that I work with, um, yeah, they they seem much more ready to reach out um, and to be touched, to touch and to be touched. Uh, it's it's kind of interesting because um, we have a program here where uh, you know the, the 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 people who are in it, it's a residential program and and people just naturally are very. Uh, Warm with each other, and and then I have, uh, well, lawyers. Let's not. <laughs> I'm a lawyer myself, but you know who say, well, that's really great, but you know that's a lawyer's nightmare because nowadays in a in any kind of setting, you're just not supposed to even touch each other. You know that's, that's mm-hmm, considered mm-hmm. a gateway to harassment. Oh, it's a tricky world we're in right now, That this particular phase. We've got some correcting to do for a lot of past poor behavior. So we're mm-hmm. sorting our way out of that. And um, But I think there are other ways to connect strongly without touching. And, and I see that in a meditation hall during a, a quiet retreat. People feel very connected with each other, but they're sitting on their separate cushions. 
And it can be very emotionally moving to have someone serve you food. And again, they're not touching you with physically, but you're in a relationship. They're serving and you're receiving. And it can be profoundly moving and lead you to this sense of overwhelming gratitude that you have this opportunity to be quiet and to listen and to receive and to be part of a, a, a very functional community for, you know, three days, five days, seven days. It's, um, it's a lovely thing. And I, I think uh, people are hungry for that um, now, especially with the, the digital invasion of our lives. I've uh, recently been reading a book called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And I feel this very much builds on all the work I did around consumerism and looking at desire and trying to understand how buying things builds our sense of self and completely works against this uh, sense of relationality. And now that at, at a digital level, even our attention is being bought and paid for. So we're, right. we're in a very precarious world. It's, it's a major challenge to keep your attention focused enough so you can be engaged in these relationships with the natural world and, and in a kind way with your fellow humans and human community as well. It makes, uh, that, that's right. It, it's interesting you mentioned that book because I've actually been thinking of um, interviewing Jenny O'Dell on this program, the author of that book. So. Oh, I would do it. She's got an amazing mind. I've just enjoyed her writing so much. Um, and she speaks exactly to some of this challenge of and uh, being being able to be with the natural world and how to keep a stable mind that can retain focus and concentration um, without being constantly fragmented and uh, sort of stolen from you, you could say. Um, so when I wrote about consumerism in a more physical object sense, I brought out the practices of restraint and simplification and a kind of letting go of the mind that picks and is always picking and choosing. And those are uh, old standard Buddhist practices to just learn what life is like with, you know, less sugar or less alcohol or not shopping, not going to the shopping mall. How does it feel to have more of yourself invested in a kind of stable presence and less in the urge to always fulfill some desire that's out there that's producing craving and dissatisfaction? So, of, of course, in Buddhist philosophy, that's the root of all unhappiness is that clinging and grasping. So we can work right very much directly with it. And I've been pleased to see how green-leaning, Buddhist-leaning environmentalists are, are working ethical edges around what we do consume, what kind of animal products cause the least harm, uh, how to support a vegan lifestyle, um, how to reuse and uh, recycle in a way that causes less harm. It's, it has very solid foundations in producing more well-being and contentment and reducing craving. So uh, over the last 20 years, those ethical movements have really surged. Uh, and it's heartening to see that much attention being brought to the, the things that make our life work. 
You you mentioned a really interesting example of that. You don't go into it, but I found it striking. You you say that when um, Thailand had an economic development program in the 1960s, and Thailand, of course, is a Buddhist country, um, they said to the monks, you can't teach people about being content. We don't want people to be content. I thought that yes, was they so wanted great. to welcome in the, the global economy from the West. They wanted to grow, and they thought they needed people to be active and, you know, uh, eager consumers to buy new products and to develop a middle-class lifestyle and so on. And that all seemed based around, you know, getting a dishwasher and a car and so on. And if you were content with a simpler life, you would never feel, you wouldn't pay attention to ads for those things. It just wouldn't be necessary. Your life would already feel okay. Um, and of course, the Buddhist monks were teaching contentment because uh, that meant that your mind was stable enough to not be caught in the traps of desire and clinging. And free of that kind of suffering, you could become a, a really helpful and kind person as a member of your community. So, this was a very striking thing that the uh, government insisted on this. And of course, there were activist monks that pushed back against it um, and pointed out the problems. But it was quite striking to see that contentment could be a revolutionary uh, principle in a, in a religion. Right. And, and, and have this tendency to, uh, to undermine the sort of driving mechanisms of our economic system, right? Well, our economic system is uh, being called by some now an extractivist system, one which relies entirely on extracting energy from the ground, oil, coal, and so on, and also extracting labor. We have this horrific, tragic history of enslavement uh, in the United States in particular. And now in Jenny O'Dell's book, Extracting Our Attention. And all of it is to uh, make profit and uh, build a system that um, uh, reinforces a kind of wealthy pyramid. Um, it's hard to say that that parallels any kind of spiritual development. But as, when you think extractivist, it feels like everything's being mined for monetary value. And that makes it very difficult to allow the spiritual value of those relationships to thrive when they're so under attack. And I think that ties into something you say early in the book that that um, that struck me. And uh, you you say that when you um, and I suppose this happened. Well, I don't know. Maybe at the University of Vermont. Maybe elsewhere. Um, I'll just quote what you've said. I've seen young people on field study programs sometimes take several weeks to slow down enough to arrive and be able to actually see what is right in front of them. Maybe that's because that capacity has been kind of extracted out of them. Well, or distracted out of them. They are moving at a, a very fast pace, trying to pay attention to everything that's coming at them, whether it's their studies or their friends or the advertising or their own hormones or, or just a kind of uh, energetic um, uh, stimulation, you know, 
50 years ago, there was not Wi-Fi in every cafe and every supermarket and every church. I mean, that's a, a constant pulse of electricity going into all of our indoor spaces. And it surely has some impact on, on our brain waves, similar to pesticides having an impact on, on really much of our food. Uh, before World War II, all the food that people ate was free of pesticides. And it was only after those products had been developed for the war and then were, you know, needed to find another use uh, so that they could justify their existence that suddenly we have the Rachel Carson story of Silent Spring. So every generation since then, which includes mine, have uh, had our, our capacities for concentration and emotional stability affected by the presence of pesticides. So slowing down, it just doesn't come automatically. It really takes effort and it takes creating the conditions that will allow it. To think you can do it all by yourself is another form of separate self. So it helps to have other people to be quiet with or to be in a center that supports that kind of slowing down. And on a field study program like that one I mentioned, uh, we actively introduced quiet sessions during the day, quiet exercises. Um, one of them was to work with a choose a single organism and go back to it every day and spend two to three hours just sitting there with it. It usually needed to be a plant for that reason and <laughs> see what you could find. And at first, people are you know, bored and restless and they fall asleep and they are sure there is nothing going on. And then by the end of the week, there's amazing revelations of what they have seen in that one sitting spot. But it took setting it up as a kind of container for them to have that experience. It's uh, the, the society is very noisy and is constantly pressuring uh, people to meet that high level of stimulation, whether in traffic or with television or on the internet. Um, it's, it's a major effort to withdraw enough to find yourself in the midst of all that. And of course, that's one of the virtues of a meditation practice, that during that time, you've at least given yourself 10 or 20 or 30 minutes to let the other things step back while you just settle down. And doing that every day uh, be, helps uh, serve as a benchmark, a place to return to uh, when it gets too noisy outside or in your own brain. So, so you have an active teaching career. I mean, you taught for a number of years. Is it your sense that this problem has uh, been exacerbated in in you know over the course of that time? That it's there's more distraction and and uh, more well, consumerism, I guess, uh, now than there was, say, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Yes, I think I would say that very definitely. Um, and unfortunately, one way that manifests is higher levels of mental health issues among today's students. It's really significant how those have creeped up. And some of it is uh, attention deficit disorders. Some of it is uh, emotional um, disequilibrium, highs and lows, depressions, and so on, uh, but less of an ability to be steady and relaxed in the face of all that's coming at them. 
Um, and of course, there have been social things that are, give you good cause for being a little jittery, like act, active shooter drills in your grade school. Uh, that sort of thing 50 years ago was was just not happening. There was a different level of uh, overall trust uh, within a, a smaller community, whether that's the classroom or the town. And partly that's due to a smaller population. We often forget that the world's population has doubled in the last 30 or so years. Uh, when I grew up, you played with the neighbors and there weren't that many. They were on the street and those were your friends. You know, it was kind of a simple environment out there in Beaverton, Oregon, when it was still small. Um, but doubling the population means double the traffic, double the emails or more, and and the amount of information just to, to learn to understand the world in that period of time with uh, satellite imagery and data with um, systems understandings of all our geophysical and biological uh, connections. It's, it's marvelous in many ways, but it is also a lot for a young mind to take in, uh, particularly when the brain isn't even fully developed. And, a, and in that early period, it's so easily damaged by um, too much alcohol or poor diet or not enough exercise or uh, too much difficult emotion or loneliness. It's a it's a fragile time. I felt always very compassionate for undergraduates and even my graduate students trying to build their lives in the midst of such uh, what seems like an assault of input. Um but that's sort of the role of the teacher is to kind of hold hold a student's hand and say, uh, you can go there and I'll be steady while you find your next step, whether it's in a research project or an internship or a paper for a course or even just to feel confident to speak out in class. The teacher is there to, you know, be the practice of equanimity. At least that's my Buddhist perspective on this. And I, I always felt that as a teacher, I was a practicing Buddhist, but I didn't really make a big deal of it. I didn't announce it to everybody. I just uh, would do things like bring my little meditation bell to class and start class with that bell. And they, people would tease me, but I knew that what I was doing was helping everybody settle from whatever they rushed into class from. You know, we're just going to settle for a minute. And that was long before the mindfulness movement took off. And that's, you know, now we've got that kind of practice happening in schools or school systems around the country. And it's, I think it's really helping mitigate this onslaught and giving students a chance to be steady with themselves and really find their own way in a very challenging world. So maybe you could address a, a question that comes up for me in that, and that certainly is, is, in your book, I think it's um, the uh, the chapter, the essay that you have on on feminism, uh, where where um, you you talk about this potential for a, a seeming incompatibility. Um, I'll, I'll quote some language here. You say the urgency and passion behind the feminist agenda may seem unmeditative to practicing Buddhists. The passive acceptance of Buddhist religious culture may seem unmotivated or apathetic to committed feminists. You want to comment on that? 
This is a long-standing tension in the Buddhist activist world, um, and I have struggled with it personally myself. I spent a number of years working with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, which is uh, an activist group, and trying to bring Buddhist practice to concerns like the Iraq War when that broke out in 1991. We were very active, and we developed a summer retreat uh, session called Meditation in Action. And we brought all the engaged Buddhists that were famous at the time, Joanna Macy and Robert Aiken and Sulak Sivaraksa, to you know bring talk to us about how to exactly do this thing. And on the spectrum in that chapter, I was talking about feminists and eco-feminists because the uh, concerns were so motivating, feminists have had to speak very loudly and clearly and strongly and with great urgency to get them even on the table and to help people recognize what was going on. We're seeing a kind of echo of that in the Me Too movement now of how much courage and effort and a voice it takes to even express uh, concerns, which you could call activist concerns. So uh, the med- meditators, on the other hand, and there are definitely some Buddhist centers who do not want to talk politics or anything else controversial, they're there just to support your meditation. Uh, they, they kind of go to the other end of the spectrum. And they have inherited a, a worldview from East Asia that takes a very long uh, view of time. And they talk about kalpas and eons and uh, doesn't worry too much if something doesn't happen in this lifetime, well, maybe in another lifetime. Well, that's a pretty strong clash with a Western worldview that isn't believing too much in reincarnation and where every life seems so so very precious that you need to, you know, use it to the maximum. So I'm just, I find that this tension is fruitful and useful, particularly in the West. And it's encouraged our Eastern neighbors in Thailand, for example, in Japan and uh, Vietnam and China, um, Korea, to uh, take up activist concerns drawing on their Buddhist practice. And we've kind of mutually informed each other um, through the struggle of this conversation. What I come back to primarily is that uh, meditation practice sustains the activist over time very well. It provides a kind of stability for the mind, a, a place of equanimity to practice from and it prevents burnout. And that counts for a lot when you're taking on very difficult issues. So I think that um, the meditation aspect of Buddhist activism will last and is going to be an important feature for many activist streams. And it, it constantly is surprising me that, for example, uh, climate uh Extinction Rebellion, the climate activists in Extinction Rebellion that have, you know, started in the United Kingdom have now spread around the world. They are drawing very much on Joanna Macy's work and on the Buddhist systems thinking philosophy that she presents. So people today uh, are doing that integrative work, perhaps more successfully than twenty or thirty years ago, and when the ecofeminist movement was just getting going. Um, and I, I'm glad to see that uh, it, it, it's saving a, a time to just 
<laughs> not wrestle with that so much, but uh, allow both streams to exist. When you need to go to the lobbying day for the legislative session, you go to that and you bring us a, a calm and stable mind, and then you know you come home and re uh, store it and and add to your resilience through your quiet time at home. Um, so finding that that uh, equation or that balance is, I think, every uh, activist struggle that's looking for a spiritual foundation for their work and a spiritual way to stay uh, healthy uh, through these difficult challenges that we're all trying to take on. Right. So, so do you think that meditation um, can or leads naturally? To an appreciation for interdependence. I, I know you've talked about how interdependence certainly extends into the operations of the mind. Um, I, I suppose what I'm asking is, do you think that if you just sit and meditate, you begin to see things in a kind of a systems-centered way of thinking, or or is that something that needs to be cultivated as, as a kind of a, a parallel stream? Well, you're talking to a teacher here, so I always believe that having somebody to uh, guide you or encourage you can make such an insight happen more quickly. Of course, sitting on your cushion, you can have all kinds of insights, and some of them might be very disturbing. You might gain a systems-level understanding of some of the family dynamics you grew up with, and it could feel quite traumatizing to bump into that again. Uh, in fact, a lot of work is now being done between the uh, people working with trauma-informed psychology practices uh, and people teaching Buddhist meditation to uh, see that this is something we never thought of 30 or 40 years ago. We thought you know, meditating was just kind of quieting things down. But when difficult material comes up, you might gain a systems thinking insight that requires a little more support and uh, maybe talking about it and maybe working with a counselor of some kind. So these none, nothing's automatic or guaranteed. But on the other hand, if you were in a all-day green Buddhism retreat where all the meditations were guided or uh, led outside or you did more walking meditation with certain instructions from the teacher as to what you uh, pay attention to, you might uh, find these kinds of openings and insights uh, closer at hand and and more available. Um, but I I hesitate to say anything's automatic in meditation because it's a pretty wide open space. And mostly I believe quite firmly it's important to practice with other people and and if you can, a good teacher, or at least to be exposed to a teacher even if that's on the web, there's some wonderful, wonderful things online now. So uh, the chance of uh, going down some bad dead ends or delusional states sitting alone is pretty good, actually, because we will tend to reinforce our own conditioned thinking um, without even realizing it. It's kind of a natural bias. Uh, to It's called confirmation bias. Whatever we think, we just confirm it farther and farther. So we need others to help break through some of that conditioned thinking. Um, but on the cushion, you could 
take up a practice of saying, I really want to study my conditioned thinking about meat or about trees or about mosquitoes. And you, in studying that, well, here's my emotions. You could say, how do I feel about mosquitoes? What do I think about them? What have I heard about them? Then you might pick up some insight if you really stuck with that until you came all the way out the other side of it and realized probably you'd realize you don't know very much about mosquitoes at all, um, for starters. Um, so sticking with something can take you on a good journey. Uh, but uh, systems thinking per se, it's helpful to learn a little bit about feedback, about nesting, nested systems, hierarchies. And in particular, one concept I find helpful right now is positive disintegration. So this concept of positive disintegration reflects a time when a system no longer can hold itself together with the kinds of feedbacks that were keeping everything in play, your, you know, your temperature control or something goes awry and the system starts to break down. So we're seeing this now very clearly with glaciers and frozen continents where the feedback mechanisms of freezing temperatures across the winter and certain storm patterns were keeping our glacial ice pack very uh, firm and solid. But as the feedback has shifted to longer warming periods, more undercutting of the glaciers with underground rivers and so on, uh, the systems of stable ice forms are collapsing. So it's one form of positive disintegration. And they will become something else, you know, uh, flowing water in our oceans. So, so studying those kinds of uh, phenomenon give you vocabulary for uh, observing them in the natural world and also in the social world, in the political and economic world. And of course, in, in your own internal uh, shape of understanding what what's being let go of because it doesn't hold anymore and is useful to let go of and throw on the compost pile and what is emerging. And they, so the other side of that concept of disintegration is emergence. And for me, as we come into spring, I just go crazy wanting to study emergence at the sign of the first little shoot or a little seed opening and just to study how, how does this being go through emergence and make something totally new out of a bulb or a seed or soil. It's, it's quite a study to look at both of those concepts outside of yourself and then being able to recognize them inside yourself or in your own uh, social and human reactions. Well, I, I think I'm going to have to call that a good place to stop. There's, there's so many interesting things in, um, in your book. Um, I, I perhaps should point out that it consists of a series of essays, some of them original, some rewritten, some previously published. And so each chapter really introduces a, a set of rich and, and new topics. Um, I, I found it very valuable, and I expect that I'll continue to make use of it. So, Stephanie, thank you so much for talking with us. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. Well, thank you for your hosting, and I, I hope this sets your listeners up for a, a nice walk outside to see what they can spot and really enjoy the miraculous emergence of this amazing world we live in 
it leaves you really in the midst of all the systems thinking and Buddhist philosophy, just feeling uh, filled with immeasurable gratitude. Now, that is a good place to end. Okay, thank you very much. Um, you're working on a book with Joanna Macy right now, right? Yes, I am. That will be out in April, and it's called A Wild Love for the World, oh. Joanna Macy and the Work of Our Time. And it's a tribute volume to all the incredible work she has done, but it also includes some of her writing. And I've edited and brought together all the contributions. And I, we're very excited to see it coming out um, very soon. Great. Okay. Take care and good luck with your work. Thank you so much. 